Welcome to Food Freedom. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who's uh, seeing the haze from record wildfires, um, hearing about record flooding in Germany, record weather events all over the planet. And uh, you know, what world are we leaving for the future generations? And you know, th- this this last month, the climate crisis that we're all facing, we are all facing, has been all too visible. So how can we how can we face all these consequences without losing our minds and, and our hearts? Um, later in the show, we're going to be talking with Michelle Simon. She's a public health attorney, a food policy expert, a founder of the Plant Based Food Association, and an author. Um, and in the next segment, we're going to be talking with the University of Minnesota's extension educator about how this heat wave is affecting our vegetable gardens. But right now, joining us is Jeffrey or Jeff Berg, a water policy specialist with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background. So I am a water policy specialist, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, as you said. Uh, I've been in that position five years. Um, I also work for Minnesota DNR five years, many years at local government with Salt Water Conservation Districts and uh, I'm actually a Wisconsin farm kid, so I dairy farmed, and I actually have a hobby farm here in the state of Wisconsin. Wonderful! Well, so pretty diverse. And so, um, so the fir- for the first time in like uh, ten years, the Minnesota State Dro- Drought Task Force has been convened. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So uh, the Drought Task Force uh, is convened by Minnesota DNR. Um, what it gets convened based on different, uh, you know, thresholds. So the water levels are low enough that it triggers, you know, meeting of the drought task force. So that met for the first time last Thursday, so a week ago, I believe. And, um, you know, DNR facilitated it, but, uh, wonderful partnerships to get to talking about drought from, uh, federal agencies state agencies, like universities and others, just uh, since it was the first time in 10 years, it was pretty much introducing ourselves to each other and then just going through uh, you know, what we're seeing as agencies and individuals as with drought this year. Okay, so what are you seeing? Right. So it is a you know big deal in agriculture as it is in other areas. So, you know, our uh, assistant commissioner, uh, Whitney Place and Deputy Commissioner Andrea Vabel were uh, out and about in uh, rural Minnesota you know, last week. You may have heard that Governor Waltz and my Commissioner Peterson were uh, actually up in Northwest last Thursday. Um, and it's hard to paint everything with a, you know, as a large breast. There were 20 million acres of cropland, another couple of million acres of hay and hay, grazing land, but we have drought everywhere in Minnesota, and that's supported by the uh, Minnesota, or the National Drought Monitor that actually came out here today. Uh, so, but some of the big issues we're hearing about is, you know, shortage of, you know, hay and grazing land for cattle. So, you know, the governor and the commissioner, you know, heard stories about, you know, you know there's just a shortage. Uh, combines are going to be rolling up in northwest Minnesota, you know, you know, maybe this week, uh, next week on small grains. And, you know, what I saw up there is yields of your, your wheat and, you know, barleys and things like that uh, you know, because of drought are going to be uh, down. 
So Commissioner Peterson, actually, uh, before uh, we you know got in this drought situation, was actually proactive, and every other week he's been having a agricultural stakeholder meeting to meet with uh, you know farmers and agricultural organizations and federal and state government and others to actually talk about. So it's something we're staying on top of, and uh, you know seeing what we can do to help out. So is there any idea on uh, how this drought might affect um, Minnesota's um, a- a- agriculture from a financial perspective this year? Do we have any sense of that yet? Well, too, too soon to tell the big picture, but certainly uh, what the commissioner heard about and we're hearing about uh, is uh, if there's no hay or to be had or grazing land, you know, um, farmers are going to, you know, spend more for it because they're going to have to go outside the state to get it. Or and they can't find it, they may be uh, selling out off their herds, their you know, beef cattle herds. So that is a huge economic impact. Right, and we've we'll heard that the, that's happening in other but, parts of the United States right now. Yeah, and so that just compounds the problem, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, if we can't find it in Minnesota, Dakotas, uh, they're having the same sort of issues. So we live in the land of 10,000 lakes. Do we sometimes take water for granted? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, a, again, a broad breast statement. So some areas, you know, you know, lake levels may be okay. Other levels are low. Groundwater is another issue. Um, some areas are doing okay. Some areas, um, they're low. So uh, water is you know, you know, pretty localized, even though we talk about it like on a statewide basis. And certainly we are seeing issues with surface and groundwater impacted by the drought. Yeah, of course, it's all, it all is all localized. So um, um, do we have any sense of um, how Minnesota aquifers um, might be right now in terms of, I mean, I've heard, I'm hearing some really horror stories. And for the for one time in my life, I'm actually getting kind of afraid, especially, um, you know, there's a story in the Star and Tribune today about tomatoes, and there may be a big crisis um, because there is these shortages. Our, our agri-system is dependent on water. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, Minnesota DNR, again, actually for many years have had a uh, aquifer monitoring where they actually have wells put down these aquifers and then they can measure the water level. So that's available or you might want to do a follow-up talk with them. But yes, in some areas they are low. And um, I know, yeah, and also the um, the state, there's been some work on how to um, help farmers. There's like a water certification farming program so that when we do farm, we farm in a way that is friendly for water. Yeah, thank you for mentioning Minnesota Ag Water Quality Certification Program. Yeah, tell so us what that does. Yeah. is exactly that. Yes. Yeah, how does that work? So, it, so it's uh, something that the you know fa- farmers uh, volunteer to go through the process. Um, our staff and the wonderful soil and water conservation district staff throughout the state of Minnesota will actually go visit farms and actually do a assessment of all their quality things that, uh, you know, get done on the farm and how that relates to, you know, how a farmer currently farms. So the certification program sets, I'll call them benchmarks. So uh, farmers actually have to meet water quality goals for, you know, reducing erosion and, uh, you know, how they handle uh, nitrogen fertilizer, as an example. 
And they, if they meet those water quality thresholds, they can become a Minnesota Ag Water Quality Certified Farm. And we have, uh, I think it's 800, uh, I forget, the, over 1,000 of those in Minnesota and close to 800,000 acres of certified farms in Minnesota. Right. And so what can a, what can a Minnesota State tra- t- Drought Task Force do? It's the first time you've guys convened in 10 years. What can you do? Well, certainly for me, so I'm a water policy guy, but, you know, part of my job is, you know, having connections, you know, with other agencies and farmers and ag organizations. So as a result of that drought task force, you know, what me and other folks like me at Department of Ag are doing are doing outreach with our federal partners, USDA and DNR and even local partners and saying, these are the issues we are hearing. You know, how can we coordinate to get information out to those impacted in a one-stop shop? Make it easy for them, make them quick for them, and then provide assistance uh, that they need out there. Yeah, what type of assistance might be available? So, as I talked about, one of the big issues is, you know, finding hay for, uh, you know, cattle. This is one example. So, uh, Commissioner Peterson at his meeting had our grazing and hayland specialists talk about resources. So, as an example, there's a websites out there that actually can identify spots that may be potential. Uh, Commissioner Peter- Peterson and actually the governor reached out to our U- USDA uh, folks and said, okay, on lands that you have contracts with, Conservation Reserve Program is an example, is our opportunity to hay and graze those acres. Uh, there's, uh, we reached out to Minnesota DNR on state wildlife management areas and said, uh, is there any opportunities there? So the Drought Task Force, you know, I, in my mind, that's one of the roles is we're hearing about issues, resources we all can provide, and then us all working together to, you know, help uh, address the drought. Yeah, um, and I know um, the a- agriculture obviously um, is deeply affected by the climate crisis. It's also a driver of climate emissions. And I know um, Peterson will be speaking at the Farm Fest August third and fifth. People can watch some of the stuff online, but he'll be speaking about the agriculture's role in carbon sequestration. And so, having water certified, water quality farms, working at farms and carbon sequestration—I'm not saying that correct. But farming can also be a solution to our crisis. I mean, we realize we are dependent on water. We're dependent on this climate. So we need to be friendly with the climate. Exactly. Um, And that's something that uh, the Waltz administration has challenged us agencies to deal with is, you know, here are the issues, but, uh, uh, you know, let's solve them. So there's a governor's cabinet on climate change, and then there's different committees working on that. So. Uh, agriculture and a couple of them. Commissioner Peterson will be talking about the carbon piece of that, but uh, yes, there's issues uh, with uh, you know, climate change and agriculture, but what can we do within agriculture to deal with that? So your carbon example is, is there opportunity to uh, plant more perennial cover? So can we grow these new crops that will grow on the landscape for years? You know, alfalfa farmers know how to grow that, have done that for decades. There's our opportunities to increase to that. that. So, can yeah, we create win wins? Win wins, and like Forever Green and the University of Minnesota, we're going to be speaking to the Extension Department next about what we can do with our gardens. But, Jeffrey Berg, we thank you for your time, a water policy specialist with the Minnesota Department of Ag and a member of the Minnesota State Drug Task Force. Thank you for joining us on Food Freedom Radio. We'll be right back. Run, talk, 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 talk.
commercials too. Um, so what effect has this heat we've been having on our, on our vegetables? Yeah, so across the board, uh, vegetables are stressed. You know, even if you're giving them enough water, just with this level of heat, it's really, really hard for plants to just have enough energy to get through these really hot days. And so this uh, has been affecting a lot of vegetables that flower. We're seeing a lot of issues around the time that plants set flower. So, yeah, because some plants are, I've always heard that tomatoes absolutely love hot weather. I've heard that my whole life. Oh, tomatoes love hot weather. Um, but this is a little bit too, a little, a little too hot for the tomatoes? Yeah, a little bit too much of a good thing. And that, uh, tomatoes really, really struggle with hot nights especially. We've had a lot of that, you know, where you don't even want to open your windows at night because it's so hot you're not going to cool off your house at all. And with that kind of weather, tomatoes don't tend to like that either, especially their flowers. Um, tomato flowers are only, like, able to be pollinated for maybe 50 hours, and so when it's really, really hot in that 50-hour window, the plant really focuses on just staying alive and will kind of just let those flowers go without um, them being able to pollinate. So I've noticed in my garden, like whenever I'm going up to trellis or tie or pick what little tomatoes I'm getting, I have all these tomato flowers falling off because we've had all this hot weather where pollination just isn't really going to happen for tomatoes. Right. So that's actually called flower abortion. And um, so yeah. why is that happening? It has to do with the plant kind of shifting its energy stores, and moving them more to be focused on the plant, so it kind of changes some of the structures in the flower. The pollen gets stickier. Sometimes they produce less pollen, and it just kind of results in, like, pollination just isn't going to happen because of physiologically what's happening inside that flower. Okay, and so and then the so so some plants are are not producing flowers and as much it, it's re, the, this heat wave has, is reducing the um, amount of, of fruits and vegetables being produced by plants. Yeah, so in tomatoes, you know, we have flowers falling off in some of our vine crops, um, which are dependent on bees for pollination. When it gets really hot, bees are not as active. So you might notice, like, your zucchini plants slowing down. I know mine have. I'm no longer, like, zucchini apocalypse time. <laughs> those have definitely slowed down a little bit, probably because there's just, like, there's less bees around to pollinate those female fruit. And then also, you, you wrote on this article that some zucchinis, they're producing more male flowers than female flowers. How does that work? So there's another one of those stress-related physiological shifts. And so, yeah, if you look inside the crown of a zucchini plant, you'll see a lot of those flowers on just those tiny, thin little stems. Those are going to be male flowers and a lot fewer of those female flowers. That have like you can see there's going to be a zucchini down there. There's some like bulk underneath the flower, but yeah, that's just another one of those like I'm stressed, I'm hot, I can't I can't do everything. Right, and so how do you tell <laughs> not, a, how do I know producing all the female flowers? How do you tell a male from a female zucchini? Um, so when you look you look at the flowers and then you look below them, kind of at the base, and you can do this in melons, pickles. Any of the kind of vining crops, you'll see this. So if it's a male flower, it'll just look like a stem, you know, straight up and down, similar in color and texture to the rest of the plant. And if it's a female flower, it will be swollen. It'll be a bump. You know, if it's a pumpkin plant, there'll be like a circular um, little node underneath that flower that will then develop into the thing you harvest after pollination occurs. So Marissa Shu, you're an extension educator. Um, back up and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so the focus of my extension program is integrated pest management, which is kind of just a way of saying holistic pest management. And so a big part of that is being able to figure out what's actually going on so you can respond correctly. Uh, my background is actually in entomology, so I'm a 
a bug person at my core. And, um, yeah, I've worked a lot with vegetable growers, um, both in Minnesota and then before this, I was in Michigan working with vegetable growers of all sizes. So, so um, integrated. So it's organic kind of organic approaches to, to pest control. Yep. Yeah. Integrated pest management is kind of a pest management theory that can be used by anybody on the growing spectrum. Um, just, just kind of pluck different tools out of the pest management toolbox, depending on what your growing philosophy is. Mm-hmm. So integrated pest management is really, you know, from the time you pick out seeds in the seed catalog, you're thinking, what issues do I see in my garden? How can I prevent those issues by the way I lay my garden out, by the varieties I choose, by um, the way I rotate, the way I water, the way I clean my garden up at the end of the year? Um, thinking about all those things when you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I deal with my sad-looking plants, my insect-ridden plants, my diseased plants. And, yeah, looking at pest management is kind of a something you're doing all the time and all the decisions you make. So can you put this year in context? Uh, how, uh, weather-wise, um, how, has been, how has 2021 been for um, gardens and agriculture in Minnesota? been a pretty wild ride. Um, if you remember back in June, you know, we had some really late or yeah, late in the season uh, freezing events in early June. And then we kind of switched the dial all the way up to 90 degrees and hot and dry. So it's been a really stressful season for plants, but also for the people who grow on and who grow them and are dependent on them for their livelihood. It's been a very, very tough uh, growing season. Yeah, it really has. And it's been tough on our psyches just to be around this, especially with the haze. I think it's been really a, a hard time. Yeah, it's been a very apocalyptic uh, feeling week out here. <laughs> the heat and the smog. And, yeah, it's been tough. And hopefully this weekend is starting to break finally and it's summer and, you know, we want to find the joy where it is at the moment we can. Um, that's sometimes mm-hmm. the most powerful action you can do is to find your place of your, your happy spot. Um, tell us again about um, what, what, is the, what is the extension service what, what is the, and how, how can people connect with you? Yeah, so the goal of Extension is to take the knowledge and the research generated at the university and kind of send it out into every county in Minnesota. Um, So there's parts of Extension, you know, that do nutrition education, family dynamic education, people who run 4-H programs. I'm part of the agriculture part of Extension, so my job is to work with fruit and vegetable farmers as well as gardeners to help them implement evidence-backed practices in their farms or in their yards and gardens. Um, so the best way to connect with us and our team is to go to the University of Minnesota Extension webpage. If you're a farmer, you'll see a fruit and vegetable farming section. If you're a gardener, the yard and garden section. Um, that's the way. That's where we do a lot of our outreach, and you can figure out more information on how to connect with us or with the Master Gardener program. Oh, one of the um, one of the stories I was reading is uh, the drought is it's bad in Minnesota, but it's far worse in the western part, especially California. I think California grows about 90% of the tomatoes um, in the United States. Um, and so there may be shortages coming up this year. Um, how do we make a resilient food system? It's an easy question, but I mean, knowing all these things that we're seeing with the drought, doesn't that kind of deepen our resolve to help create a resilient food system? I, I think so. I think it really highlights how important it is to have local and regional food systems that are producing the foods we in Minnesota like to eat. Um, so really, I think it's always important to support your local fruit and vegetable producers and to shop locally as much as possible because that is going to 
uh, support the growers who can become part of a new, more localized food system. And it's been hard on the on the farmers markets too with this heat. I mean, yeah, it's hard to get yourself to want to go to shop. It's hard to keep produce in good quality when you're at a hot market. Growers themselves are tired because they're out in this all day. Spend a lot of time doing just moving irrigation equipment around. So it's been hard on multiple fronts uh, for them this year. So Marissa Shu, uh, extension educator with the University of Minnesota. Yes, it's been hard, but it's all still worth it somehow, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, moving back to like, we're about to start having some cool nights. So, you know, those things that haven't been producing how you want, at least like this window of hope, like those things should yeah. start flowing and growing more normally from here on out. Let's hope so. And remember, it's, it's going to be winter pretty soon. We'll be like, oh, where was that heat? So uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much, Marisa Shu with uh, Extension Educator with the University of Minnesota. Headline and uh, the climate crisis has been all too visible. Um, thanks so much to uh, University Extension Agent Marissa Shu and thanks to uh, Jeffrey Burke, a water policy specialist for the Minnesota Department of Ag and a member of the Minnesota State Drought Task Force. We're now going to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about policy, food policy. Um, and with us right now is Michelle Simon. She's a public health attorney, a food policy expert, author, and a thought leader in the plant-based food industry. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks for having me, Laura. Yeah, so um, you've got quite a, quite the background. Share a little bit of your, your personal story. Sure. Well, I um, discovered food after I went to both public health school and law school where I learned nothing about food. Um, I really so, so you have a, you have a, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you on that. You have a master's degree in public health from Yale University yes. and they didn't yes. talk about nutrition and public health at Yale <laughs> in a master's no, program. I know. I, I'm glad you picked up on that because <laughs> I do often like to point that out. I, I like to think things have changed a bit. I mean, I have to admit I went to school, um, to grad school in the 1990s when, you know, there just wasn't as much, um, sadly <laughs> attention being paid to, the immense role that food plays in our lives and so many aspects of our lives. But um, so I, you know, I had to really teach myself everything I now know about the massive impact of our food choices on our health, the environment, animal welfare, labor, you name it, pretty much food production um, touches on it. And so once I came to that realization for personal reasons, it, like a no-brainer to me that I wanted to apply my life's work to helping to really solve the pressing problems related to how we produce and sell food. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. And again, at the time, this is now um, the late 90s, I, there really weren't a lot of uh, people looking at this issue through a political lens. And I discovered the work of Marion Nessel who hadn't yet published her numerous books, but was a professor at NYU writing academic articles about, for example, the influence of the meat and dairy industries on the dietary guidelines, right? How the government tells us what to eat. Um, and that kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, you know, there is <laughs> a huge political influence in what we eat. And so I kind of followed in her footsteps 
and um, she's you know still I consider her a mentor in my career and um, and then sort of the rest of the um, I guess the food movement sort of formed you'd say over the last 20-25 years and I've played various roles in it all with this idea of really shining a light on the deep entrenchment of um, certain sectors of the food industry to maintain a status quo that is really keeping um, many people sick and eating their own foods and um, destroying our planet and doing just a lot of harm in, in numerous ways. Yeah, and so one of the easiest or one of the um, blaring examples is um, diabetes. Um, in the 80s, we didn't even hear about juvenile diabetes. Um, and and yet our farm policy subsidizes corn syrup and fruits and vegetables are too expensive for people to buy. Um, and so I mean, in 2006, you wrote a book called Appetite for Pro- Profit, How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back. So share with us some of the ideas ideas in that book? Sure. Well, at the time, um, early 2000s was when the sort of symptom, if you will, of the day was obesity. And so there was a lot of head scratching and, um, you know, questions being raised in the media. How did we get here? How is it that so many Americans are um, obese or overweight? I, I then have shifted away, since I've really shifted away from focusing on weight, I think, that's problematic on a number of levels. Really, what we're talking about is a public health crisis um, due to poor eating habits, a lot of which are a result of, you know, very um, well-funded marketing campaigns by the likes of Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and McDonald's and Kraft and all the rest. And so I wrote the book because there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, promises and pledges and claims by these companies that they were, quote-unquote, part of the solution, that they understood, you know, the hue and cry about the need to uh, see change in the food industry, for example, when it came to marketing to children, particularly in schools. And yet, um, the experience on the ground was very different. And so it was really meant to cut underneath the um, rhetoric of the food industry saying things like, yes, well, we, we want, we're changing our ways. You know, McDonald's is selling salads now. Um, Coca-Cola is promoting diet soda. You know, all of these sort of clever uh, PR tools that industry would use to claim that they were fixing the so-called obesity epidemic when the reality was it was business as usual and, you know, um, Really, McDonald's is not a salad company, go figure. And, um, and in the halls of Congress and in state legislatures around the country, these same companies that claim to be part of the solution were fighting tooth and nail against any laws that would undermine their business model. So that was the idea of behind that book. And, you know, it's interesting, people still read it now, some, what, 15, 16 years later. Um, sadly, while the names of the players have changed, or not all of them, but um, you know, we're no longer in the Bush administration, but uh, many of the tactics, most of the tactics, really all the tactics remain. Um, and so uh, the book remains relevant today. 
Yeah, and so um, sugar, salt, fat, the human animal kind of goes, oh, that sounds good, and that's really unhealthy for us. And yet there's so many people, and I, I know them. I see their faces right now. I'd actually like to buy my daughter loves grapes. Do you know the price of grapes? It's expensive. Fruits and vegetables are expensive, and yet we're spending so much money collectively on health care because corn syrup is cheap, even though it's very unhealthy for kids to be eating, um, not to mention all the pesticides and chemicals. And so so just you know, lay out your vision. What's, what's wrong with our current food system? Yeah. Well, I think what you're identifying is what I call this huge disconnect between our agricultural policies and public health recommendations, right? And the best example of that is that we don't even grow enough fruits and vegetables in this country to meet the federal dietary guidelines about how much, you know, fresh produce Americans need to be eating. I mean, I always like to repeat that because it's pretty stunning when you think about it, right? We have government dietary guidelines, right, that, you know, every five years get updated, and there's lots of politics that go into that, but, you know, there's a very consistent message that comes out every five years, which is Americans' big surprise, don't eat enough fresh produce, and yet... We don't even grow enough fresh produce. You know, that's the first time I've heard that fact that we do not grow enough fruits and vegetables to meet the uh, guidelines for yeah. our. Well, who wants to eat fruits and vegetables? I mean, <laughs> they're kind of icky, well, aren't they? I mean, you know. But, yeah. And, and well, probably. Right. And so what do we grow instead? Right. So, oh. so let's talk about it's not that we don't have enough land, right? I mean, we've sort of relegated. Um, growing fruits and vegetables, mostly to my state in California, which is, you know, referred to as a salad bowl, and those fruits and vegetables get, um, you know, do, distributed around the country, but not enough of them. But more importantly is what are we growing instead, right? And so we're growing lots and lots of corn, lots and lots of soy, which, you know, you think, oh, well, is it corn on the cob? Is it, you know, soy for some fresh tofu? No. <laughs> The corn and soy that is grown in this country is almost exclusively grown to feed animals. And yes, some corn goes to corn syrup, which you mentioned, but really almost all of the corn and soy that is grown in unbelievable amounts and mostly in the you know, middle of the country is grown to feed animals, which is about the least efficient, stupidest agricultural policy you know, we could possibly have, except that it keeps a lot of large um, farm operations and lobbyists very happy. So, you know, that's in large part what keeps the, what I call the engine of the meat and dairy industries going. So why the, um, particularly meat, it continues to, to really be, to not reflect its true cost is because the inputs that go into meat production, such as corn and soy, which go to animal feed, are dirt cheap, right? There are and other that's because they're subsidized, well. yeah. So they're subsidized by the government, right? And so farmers are basically being paid to grow these row crops of corn and soy, and they are then fed to animals, and that's what keeps the engine of meat production going. But I want to also point out that it's not just um, subsidization of, of input ingredients like corn and soy that has made meat so prevalent in the diet and so easy to access. It's also the consolidation of the meat industry and vertical integration and just 
absolute power of so few companies, so much so that four companies control over 80% of the meat supply, which is crazy. And when you think about how vulnerable that makes the food supply, which we saw happen, right, in the early days of the pandemic, when workers were getting sick because the meat factories, God forbid, you know, would press pause. Um, and so they were putting meat workers at risk, and then there was a slowdown in meat production, and El Hebro boost there for a few months. So, yeah, you know, there's... it's really a combination of factors, but all going to this outsized amount of... And Michelle Simon, uh, you also founded um, something called the Plant-Based Foods Association. You want to talk about that? Sure, yes. Well, um, you know, my heart has always been in promoting a plant-based diet, and that can mean a lot of different things. And while mostly I do promote eating a whole food, plant-based diet, meaning real foods in nature, um, I realized in 2014 there was an opportunity to really pull together companies that were making alternatives to conventional meat and dairy products, so products like almond milk and meat alternatives and so forth. And so I um, spent a year getting off the uh, ground uh, an association of uh, member companies and we launched in only 2016, and I'm proud to say I grew that association over the five years that I ran it um, until I left at the end of last year. And so the idea was to really be a collective voice, particularly in the political arena, to fight off the likes of the meat and dairy industries for, you know, saying they didn't want companies to call almond milk almond milk and use words like um, chicken or beef or sausage on meat alternatives. And so um, it was meant really to be kind of a political counterweight to the meat and dairy industries because obviously that is very much needed um, in the marketplace as well. And um, does is a vegan diet um, better for climate? Well, there's no question that eating lower on the food chain, meaning eating um, more plants and less meat, is beneficial to the environment as well as our own health. And so the science has shown for decades that um, cutting back on meat production and <laughs> meat consumption is definitely something that will help the planet. You know, so, so Michelle, we're going we're to take a break. We're going to take a break. And okay. when we come back, we're going to talk about lab-made um, meat. Um, is that also a climate solution? You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us is Michelle Simon. She's a food industry consultant, an author, a policy expert, and founder of the Plant-Based Food Association. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. And we're hearing more and more about lab-made foods. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, we have to really get more specific. So there is... um, an effort and a lot of investment money going into what I call biotech meat and also biotech dairy. So we were talking earlier about the role of plant-based alternatives to conventional meat and dairy products, which are pretty standard, you know, nothing really crazy going on there. Uh, Products that have been on the market for a long time, whether we're talking about almond milk or, you know, a meat alternative. But what's going on with this newfangled, um, technology is really foods that have never, ever been on the market before. And some of them are using um, genetic engineering 
although they don't like to use that terminology. So that's why, you know, we have to really be paying close attention to what's going on because there's a lot of euphemisms being thrown around to try and um, hide the fact that this technology in, um, in food. And so there's a, a biotech dairy ingredient that's being used inside um, ice cream now being promoted by a company called Perfect Day. And there are several brands that are using this technology that are already on the market. And I've written some about the confusing labeling that's going on with that. So that's one sort of category of biotechnology that's um, already on the market and a lot more of that to come. The other um, big push that's going on that's not yet on the market, at least here in the U.S., is on biotech meat. And that is using cells from the animal grown in a laboratory setting in bioreactors to create a, basically a you know, fake meat product made from cells. And it goes by different names. Some are calling it cell-based meat. Some are calling it cultured meat. I mean, it's got, again, lots of euphemisms. I just call it biotech meat to make it easy. Um, and, and, uh, and you started being sold as... Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. You started, um, you said uh, you, you didn't like, you, you learned about domination in the food system, and that kind of started your work decades and decades ago. And some of this biotech, they're actually trying to um, say they have intellectual property over different life forms. Personally, I don't think I don't think there's any such, such thing as intellectual property. I don't think we can really even own ideas. They're, they, they're, it's like owning a drop of water in an ocean. <laughs> so... Um, But this is really scary because obviously um, plant-based is so cool. People are doing really fantastic things with pea proteins and mushrooms. But then there's this group of people with a lot of financial resources and a lot of domination of our food system that is coming up with other ideas. And they're saying that their ideas need to be adapted by the whole in order to fight climate change. Do I have that about right? Yes. So, of course. You know, whenever there's a new technology, there has to be a, you know, mission to save the world behind it because how else would we justify it? And so the um, rhetoric that we're hearing is, oh, my God, you know, we know that there's problems with current meat production. Obviously, we touched on some of that earlier, but this new technology is being sold as the solution, right, as opposed to eating lower on the food chain, even different forms of meat production, to me, are preferable to this um, unknown technology. And, you know, when you think about it from a health perspective, given everything we know about how eating too much meat is so unhealthy, how could it possibly make any sense to reinvent a disease-causing food in a laboratory on purpose with, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of investment money behind it? Only Silicon Valley could dream up, you know, such a quote-unquote solution. And... There's lots of questions now swirling around even the economic viability of this technology, which is totally unproven, and some scientists are saying will never, ever scale up or work um, in a commercial way. So it's really a distraction. It it is. And in the same culture, the same economic culture that created or resulted in climate change, that resulted in inequity, that resulted in these domination models, the same value system at the root of all of our ways of acting and being with other life forms on this planet, 
Um, and it, it, for some reason, I'm even jumping to, you know, the fact that you went to Yale Public Health and they didn't talk about nutrition. <laughs> We're just so disconnected in our intellectual history. Um, someone that I know always right. said we're, we're sort of like um, pre-agricultural animals in a post-technology world. <laughs> and so we keep kind of trying to go to the next tool. And it's so emotionally charged that and, and right. so well, dependent on the money systems. Right. Well, I think what you're saying is we're, we're just recreating the same model, the same business model that got us here in the first place. Right. We're just going to lay around more corporate in, investment and, you know, technology and to a broken system. And, I mean, it's even worse than a Band-Aid, really. I mean, it's just insanity. And, you know, we're not working with nature, working against nature. Right? Okay. And so, you know, nature bats last, right? And so the, the Earth is, is very wise. <laughs> and the Earth knows exactly what to do to heal itself. But you're right. We, as humanity, are, have so much hubris to think that we know better. We know what to do. We're just going to reinvent new things, you know, yeah. the new shiny thing to make a lot of money in the short term, now, not to worry about the long-term consequences. I, I hope I can express this, but it's not we as humanity, because we as humanity, I think, would create mm. a different system. It's we as this function, as this extractive economic domination systems. We as That's Mordor. <laughs> not we yes. as Frodo, but we as no. Mordor. So we have only a, a minute and a half left. Tell us a little bit more about how people can read and find about you. And and I don't want to just always end on the good news, but I still feel a lot of hope somehow. <laughs> And knowing about yes. work like yours gives me hope. Yes, thank you. Well, um, you know, I've been uh, writing articles at LinkedIn, so you can find me there, Michelle Simon, and I have a, also a Twitter account, Michelle Simon. And, you know, I just say that we have to have hope, right? I mean, um, it does feel some days like when we doom, but it's not too late, right? And I think the important thing is that we, as in the people who can actually make change happen, do need to wake up and to realize we have a crisis on our hands. Those of us who are in privileged positions to actually, you know, help make change happen, you know, by donating money to the right causes or getting involved as a volunteer. We need to talk about the workers and how exploited they are. But there are so many great um, ways to get involved, whether that's through, you know, your neighborhood um, food system, you know, through your local schools or in your neighborhood or going out from there, you know, lots of great state, regional, and national efforts going on. I think that the most important thing is to get involved in whatever way that really speaks to you. I mean, it could even be, you know, improving our democracy. God knows we've got a lot of work to do there, you know, since that concept is very much under assault right now. Right. So I, I just think the whole it is really up to us, right? There's it is. No, um, and we can shop our co-ops. No, and Michelle, I unfortunately have to say goodbye. I'm sure we could talk a long time. I'd love okay. to have you again. Uh, but you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio and Michelle Simon. Um, and thank you for listening and have an awesome weekend. I'm talking to you.